The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Terratech with Jim Lane. Terratech is all about the products and companies that are using substantial materials that are changing the way we dress, eat, drink, shop, and live. We are becoming a more bioeconomic society and are more aware of the products in our lives. Now, here's your host, Jim Lane. Welcome to Terratech. I'm your host, Jim Lane, for the next 60 minutes as we explore the quest for sustainable, affordable, reliable, and available flavors and flavorings in the renewable space. You know the old saying, you are what you eat. If that's true, then what you are is probably imported petroleum, because that's what a lot of flavorings are made from these days. Vanilla flavoring, made from petroleum, mostly around the world. Tart flavors for candies and drinks, Some of that comes from petroleum, even things like smokehouse flavors for barbecue sauce. Petroleum is at the heart of a lot of it. It's a big barrel of oil in your pantry, and though we produce a lot at home, not as much as we use, and as a global commodity, the price is set by people far, far away from your kitchen whose policy goals may have little to do with your American or your culinary interests. So recently, a new wave of companies has been coming through with technologies that make the spectrum of flavors and fragrances from a range of everyday raw materials like sugar or even waste residues left over from someone else's industrial process traditionally headed for the landfill. Joining me this morning as we explore on TerraTech, the flavor and fragrance revolution is longtime industry consultant Scott Chaplin, who we've seen popping up at industrial biotech industry events like ABLC of Lake. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Jim. How are you today? I'm doing great. We're excited to uh, delve into flavors and fragrances. Tell us a little bit about your about your background, and we're going to get into the market as well. But uh, let's let's get you introduced to our to our radio audience. I will, Jim. Uh, I spent over 30 years in the flavor and fragrance industry, um, uh, starting with my the roots uh, in the fragrance industry, and then moving eventually in this latter part of my career to the flavor part of the world, uh, and ingredients. So my specialty as a consultant with SCMC Consulting, my own consulting firm, is really to help people understand the industry, the market, the size, the potential, uh, and the players, and how to navigate uh, this unique industry. So let's get into the market. I, I said at the top of the program that a lot of this material is ultimately made and traditionally has been made of late from petroleum. Is that is that really the case, or is it is it mostly natural uh, uh, ingredients? Um, how is how is uh, how are these things sourced? You know, it's it's really a combination. And if you look at the flavor and fragrance industry, um, it's really kind of separated uh, by two groups flavors and fragrances. And most of the reason for that is because of the application and the regulatory issues behind it. So, for example, the flavor industry is regulated by the FDA and USDA, whereas the fragrance industry is self-regulated by IFRA, RIFRAM, and REACH. Uh, So those are kind of the key drivers in terms of the separation between those. And in terms of coming from chemicals, petroleum, um, 
that used to be the case and still is in, in many cases for flavors, but in fragrances, it's very much the case. Uh, so let me give you a perfect example. At my old company uh, at IFF, International Flavors and Fragrances, where I spent uh, 20 of my 30-year career, um, when I first joined them back in the 80s, we were producing about maybe 15 to 10% what we call NNA flavors, natural and artificial, which are a combination of artificial ingredients, which could be petroleum-based or could be uh, other synthetic materials. Um, and that was pretty the premise at that time, and that was what the customers, which were the big CPG companies like Coke, Pepsi, Kraft, or whatever for flavor usage, were using. Uh, today, it's probably completely reverted, inverted. So today, it's probably 80, 90% natural flavors, and NNA flavors or artificial flavors are a very small percentage now of the portfolio. So what is driving the push of the market uh, with um, towards these new uh, companies. We, we've seen, for example, International Flavors and Fragrances, your old company, has partnered up with a company uh, by the name of Amaris. Amaris uh, came yeah. onto the market uh, a couple of years ago, or the technology behind Amaris came out uh, because Bill Gates and his uh, uh, foundation invested in it as an anti-malarial technology and uh, malaria uh, prevention uh, technology, and it's been very successful in that respect. And next, we saw them on stage at places like the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos talking about the future of renewable jet fuel. But now we see them partnering with, with IFF. What, what are those um, things that, that, co- that big companies like IFF are looking for? Um, is it sustainability, consumer pressure? Is it cost volatility? What are the factors that lead them to partner with companies like Amaris? Boy, Jim, you hit on all the three top uh, areas. Really what happened is it's really consumer. Consumers are driving the need for natural products because of health and wellness. So some of the three big mantras from the flavor and fragrance and CPG companies like Coke and Pepsi, Kraft, and et cetera, if you go through the list of big companies, um, they, are, they have mandates almost to reduce sugar, salt, and fat or various types of fat. And because of that, it's changing the, the taste profile, which is a big part of the, the component for the flavor companies. And, and what they're doing is they're trying to find materials or ingredients, whether they be drop-ins, replacements for existing materials, uh, at better prices, as you mentioned, in terms of cost, um, to support these natural efforts because natural typically comes from natural sources, uh, from crops, and it's sometimes not sustainable. So there's a sustainability aspect, there's a cost aspect, there's a quality aspect, uh, and there's a flavor. So besides drop-ins, which are replacements, they're also looking for new ingredients. So people like Amaris, Ibaba, and others who are in the marketplace are actually working with the F&F companies to not only find replacements uh, at a cost, more sustainable benefits to them, they're also looking for some even unique materials that has different properties. And it gives them a different point of difference in the marketplace with their customers. Give us an example, Scott, of a of a, a good target. If if it were you advising a, a new company coming forward, where would you target them? Is it is it sweeteners? Is it uh, you know pure flavorings? Uh, you know what what kind of areas would be the 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 biggest opportunities that you would see for a new technology coming forward, where where you have those uh, combination of of opportunities? Well, you know, you, you just mentioned one of them just a second ago, Jim. Sweeteners is a, is a big target right now. And uh, the, you know, when you see things happening in the world like the sugar tax in Europe, and it's already happened in Mexico and different places, uh, clients are looking, you know, customers are looking for ways to avoid the taxes and, and also make their products healthier. 
so there's a, there's a business component to this, and there's also the healthy component. Uh, so when you start looking at these natural sweeteners that are different than artificial sweeteners, a la from stevia or monk fruit or other uh, polyols and alcohol sugars, you find that um, there's not a lot of access out there. There's a lot of these materials produced, uh, but they're through the extraction base. Not that there's anything wrong with natural extracted products, but some of the more finer, um, more improved products uh, in the plants have actually different sweetness characteristics. So, for example, in the stevia leaf, there's, there's many um, steviaglycosides. Uh, some of them have a bitter off taste, and some of them are actually very pure and taste much more like sugar. Unfortunately, the ones that taste like sugar are very small percentage, so they're not really commercially viable through stevia leaf extraction. So that's why you have companies uh, like Evolva and, and other companies in this area working with the big sweetener companies and the flavored fragrance companies uh, to come up with alternatives uh, like uh, Reb-M and Reb-D. They're in such small quantities, but their, their, their sugar, uh, I should say, taste and substance profile is, is, is spot on. So they're great replacements for sugar um, that, that don't have any off taste or off level. So that's where they're, one of the preferences are. And you see these developments now with, um, with Evolva and Cargill and others. So that's a big one. In terms of new things, I, you know, things, for example, I, there was just an article the other day I read that uh, a company in California called Hint, they make flavored water. Uh, and it's a good product, and they, they've been out for a number of years now. It looks like they're, they're, they have a class action, a lawsuit against them because they're using propylene glycol. And it's a, we go back to your original uh, intro, it's a petro-based ingredient that's used as a solubilizer for flavor materials. Uh, so, for example, if someone were looking for a natural source of propylene glycol that was cost-competitive, Biosyn would be a perfect place for something like that, to deliver that. Now, in the, in the area of, of stevia, you mentioned that, that uh, the yields are um, probably a little bit low uh, to make that you know, cost-competitive. And you can imagine if, if you had this huge upswing in, in demand uh, for Correct. stevia-based sweeteners, you'd, you'd have to you know, put uh, Brazil under the, under the, uh, uh, under the yoke there to, to come up with all the acreage. So is, is, that, is that partly the concern? Is it, is it, is it just the, uh, um, the, the, the taste pressure, that aftertaste issue, or is it also partly just this feeling of there just isn't going to be enough, uh, you know, traditional acreage available to grow uh, to meet the, the growing demand for sweeteners? Is that, is that a concern yeah. as well? There is a part of sustainability, which is the actually amount of land you need to require to produce products to do the extractions. Uh, the biggest issue, say, with Reb-D and Reb-M uh, and stevia sides is that there's just not enough of that product in the leaf. It's, it's sometimes less than 1%. Uh, so, you know, to do extract that, you'd have to, you know, what do you do with the other, you know, 99% of the extraction product? Um, so there's, there's just not, it's just not commercially feasible. Uh, for companies to do it that way and make it cost competitive, as you mentioned earlier. So that's where Biosyn comes in process. Um, they can actually create these products. And uh, it's really going to be the, the companies that are either first to market and or that have the, the, the best cost structure and less complexity are going to be the companies that um, will, um, how would you say, succeed in this, in this marketplace. 
Well, let's move over to to the uh, fragrance side that we we started with in your opening remarks, and uh, right. companies like uh, Givadon, which is a you know a big European based uh, global flavors and fragrance company. Uh, again, a, co- a collaboration with Amaris, but working with other companies yep. as well. But in that case, they're they're focusing on cosmetic active targets. Uh, what's what's going on there? Is that is that uh, more active or just as active, or is that a little bit slower? The the uh, the fragrance side. Yeah, it's actually pretty active, uh, Jim. So what's happening on the fragrance side is, is a couple things. They're, they're looking again, as you met, we talked earlier, about drop-ins and replacements for existing products uh, that are either uh, being driven up by cost or price. Uh, and they're also looking for active materials, new ingredients from their customers. So the Estee Lauders, the uh, Revlons, the Recommend Keysers of the world, uh, the Avons. You know, they're, they're looking, L'Oreal's, they're looking for unique materials to put into their products. And in some cases, they can get that through the F&F companies. Uh, in some cases, they go directly to the manufacturers for some specialties. But they're looking for unique products. So, for example, Juvedon, IFF, and a few others have actually purchased a number of natural, active uh, cosmetic ingredient companies over the last two or three years to get more ingrained in, in, in that business. And the other reason they want to get more foothold in that industry is because the fragrance industry is a little bit more profitable to them than the fragrance side of the business. The biggest difference between flavors and fragrance besides regulatory is the volumes. Uh, you have a lot more volume on the flavor side that goes into food and beverage products where you have tons and tons of products a year, whereas you go into cosmetics, it's a little more specialized and a little bit lesser volume. So you have, you have higher margins because of the based on the volumes and the uniqueness of the products. Well, in, in that particular uh, that particular company Juvenon, they they have a, a new uh, a new brand they they have a, an identity called active beauty is this is this uh, you know this sort of active uh, cosmetics business is this a growth area for them or just another niche it, it's it's a niche grocery for them so it's going to be a, a nice margin product for them uh, that gives them some more breadth of, of scope in in the cosmetic and functional cosmetic area, and and a couple of their competitors have actually jumped on the bandwagon uh, along with Givenon with other acquisitions and developments in those areas. So, this again is where Biosyn can can work with them on delivering quote sustainable natural products at a cost competitive price versus typically these products are produced through plant extractions and and through through nature. We've also seen that they've done a little bit of acquisition activity. There was a, a French uh, biosource company called Soliance that was acquired by Givadon uh, at one point, and they also picked up a uh, cosmetic ingredients firm called Indichem uh, a couple of years ago. So it looks like they're they're seeing some some real opportunities there. Is that uh, is that going to continue, or are those one offs? Uh, I think the, they're still looking for that. So, for example, if if they were to find the right bios and partner and there's a very real possibility that they could be an investor and slash and or an, you know, an acquisition target in the future. You know, it's very similar with what Coca-Cola does in a CPG world where they'll go out and they'll buy, you know, 20% stock or stake or equity into a company. And then, you know, eventually they end up owning it if that seems to be the right commercial move for them. You know, a typical example right now is Monster and they've done this a pass with Glasso and other products. So I can see that type of thing happening also on the FNS side. Now we've we've seen companies like Evolva that's making the the stevia replacement in a partnership with uh, with Cargill, um, 
and getting investment from there. Um, we, we've seen them talking about other products. This is this is an early uh, commercial uh, target for them. They're talking about other things like a resveratrol-based uh, product, which is the uh, active ingredient in wine, red wine, that uh, promotes heart health. So they're looking at developing that. But here in this segment, they see in this uh, in this sector a real uh, breakout opportunity. Do you expect to see more companies uh, dr- uh, moving into this uh, sector from a technology point of view uh, to take advantage of these uh, um, uh, these active strategic uh, partners that might provide uh, investment and, uh, and and market access for them? Yeah, uh, Jim, that's a good point. Uh, typically, in in my consulting practice, a lot of the questions that I get asked from from customers in Biosyn is besides who are the partners, what are they looking for, uh, what can we make, and, and trying to understand core competencies. So, yeah, that is the trend that you're going to see going on. You know, go back to the Jividon statement about the active ingredients. I also believe that my old company, IFF, just recently made a purchase in France too in the same regard. So, I can see these things happening to continue, and almost all of the top flavor and fragrance companies, say the top five, which would include Juvenon, Firmish, IFF, and Sunrise, and maybe even more below that, have strategic partnerships or collaborative agreements and even investments into the, the, the Synbio companies, as you mentioned, Amaris, uh, Evolva, et cetera. Uh, and it goes down. And it really comes down to those companies' specialty and what they're able to offer and produce for those companies and how how they can really make it commercially viable. And that's that's where the catch is. I don't know if you've seen the headlines with the Evolva and, um, and Cargo recently, but they're having some challenges commercializing the product, the new Stevia product, at the price points and supply points that they want. And maybe even some purification, but they haven't gone into it. But so, so they're wrestling through some of these details to get the commercialization completed. They introduced, uh, Cargo introduced the product 2015 supply side west as a kind of a test and trial and now they're saying they they may not introduce it until 2018 so that's that's quite a long time to to get it geared up so i think they ran into a few snags and that was one of the reasons that we recently had a press release and and uh some uh, some some focus on both companies to get this uh, commercialized faster so a quick question as we as we leave yeah. the segment scott as we look at the um, as, as we look at the opportunities, do you see uh, 2017, 2018, 2019? When are we going to see that breakout year, uh, not only from a point of view of developing technology, but also getting things into the field? Is it is it really soon, or are we looking at 2020 and beyond? I think you're probably looking to start seeing a few things uh, get into the market this year and next year. And then I think the real breakout is going to be around 2020. I think that's when you're going to see a lot more of these products in the marketplace, being utilized by the FNF industries that, that are eventually being used by CPG companies and then c- consumers at the end of the day. Uh, I think the key thing that's going to drive it is regulatory and, and definitions and transparency. Uh, people are going to, consumers are going to want to know where these products are coming from and what they entail and that they're safe for them. And that's the whole thing. Uh, and the big companies are going to want to make sure that they're commercially available, they're cost competitive, and they deliver the performance that their consumers are looking for. Well, thank you, Scott, for joining us on Terratech this morning. When we come back after this short break, we'll explore a company that has been partnered with companies like Anheuser-Busch to turn waste industrial residues into high-value flavors that, that replace the uh, traditional materials. They've come up with a hit bacon flavoring made from coffee waste. Stay with us.
Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. TerraTech is brought to you by the Advanced Bioeconomy Leadership Conference, March 1st through 3rd in Washington, D.C. Technology Convergence, Energy Security, Advanced Manufacturing, and Clean Economy Jobs. The RFS, which is Renewable Fuel Standard, is an important tool in the mission to achieve energy independence for the United States. Energy independence is a requirement of America's to become great again. My theme is Make America Great Again. I will do all that is in my power as president to achieve that goal. combination of biology and uh, the technologies coming out of IT is really what's going to drive some amazing... Oil new- prices, yes. The story on um, everyone's talking about. But if the U.S. can prove that next-gen biofuels works and that you know, other technologies work like DME and, and really great kind of biogas vehicles, then they can export that. The thing that really is exciting is this convergence. To learn more, visit biofuelsdigest.com slash ABLC. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Terra Tech. To reach Jim Lane or his guest today, call into the program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to jlane at biofuelsdigest.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to TerraTech. I'm your host, Jim Lane. And in this morning's program, we've been on a journey in search of the new flavors and fragrances. And one company that's been trying to find and finding good things to do with industrial waste residues from uh, beer makers, from coffee makers, um, and others have um, they've partnered up with Blue Marble Biomaterials, and joining us from Missoula, Montana today is the co-CEO and founder James Stevens. Thanks for joining us on TerraTech today, and tell us a little bit about Blue Marble and where it came from. Good morning, Jim, and thank you for having me on the show. So Blue Marble was originally founded on the concept of taking uh, a variety of industrial side streams or manufacturing side streams or waste and, and really valorizing those and turning those into other products. So, you know, what Blue Marble has done, and you've covered us numerous times uh, in the digest, is, you know, we've moved, um, you know, and pivoted away from the fuel space in the late, you know, 2000s into really focusing on, you know, high-value, high-impact materials for flavor, fragrance, and personal care markets. You know, taking those wastes from food manufacturing and really converting them through, you know, a biotechnology process into these various, you know, high potency, high impact, you know, effectively functional molecules as your previous guest was talking about. So we wrote a story uh, last summer called the Summer of Innovation, and we we started it saying that some people see used coffee grounds and say, yuck, 
And other people dream of bacon flavoring and say, why not? And where do you get the idea from this stuff? You sitting around drinking coffee one day and go, hey, we could use this. Where, where does yeah, it, where, really, where do you get the crazy ideas? Of, oh, sorry, excuse me, Jim. I'll let you finish your statement. No, I just was saying, where do, you, where do you get the crazy ideas? Yeah, you know, really it's a combination of looking at our platform capabilities and Blue Marble's platform technology with, uh, you know, non-GMO polyculture and combining it with a market pull from our partners. So if our partners are like, you know, we really need a natural version of X, Y, and Z, or what can you do in this category, that's where we really, really start looking at, you know, their chemistry needs or their product needs and really combining it with our technology. And so for us, we always look at feedstock as this great starting material, right? So coffee is ideal for us because it's rich in cellulosic materials, it's rich in nitrogen, it's rich in sulfur, it's rich in phosphorus. So it's kind of a complete package to be able to do all sorts of downstream bioconversions. And that really, you know, has the sky's the limit for our capability of making molecules from different feedstocks, be it great pumice, be it, you know, breweries grain, be it um, the coffee feedstock that you're talking about. And so really a lot of it comes from talking with our partners and really assessing their needs or their desires and then really launching a rapid innovation campaign for them. We, we generally will, you know, be able to generate prototypes for them to evaluate within weeks or short months of them kind of coming to us and saying, hey, we're interested in this concept or we know you're working in this space. Can you do, you know, can you do something similar or do that exact process for us? So do you, when you start with a partner, you, you, you start with the, the residue, uh, I guess, provider. So is that, I'm not, to, not to mention names because you probably have them under NDA, but just to use an example like a company like Starbucks, uh, whether you're not you're doing business with them, is that the kind of company that you start with? And, you, um, and, and how do you get through that uh, question of how do you aggregate all this stuff? Where do you, where do you pick it up? Yeah, so, you know, generally a great example of a partner we're working with right now that I can talk about is we're partnered with Welch's on valorizing their grape pumice side stream. So Welch's makes grape juice everyone, you know, a grape juice everyone loves. And when they're done making the juice, they have the pumice left over. And what we'll do is we'll do an initial assessment of that material, and then we'll do a general survey of what we want to do with it. And then we'll go back to the partner and our other partners and say, okay, we have a feedstock, you know, and it can generate this broad category of materials from it. What do you want to do? And then by aggregating it, you know, agriculture is already aggregating that feedstock to a central location, right? So you look at a juice plant, they're already aggregating all of those grapes. So we already have a concentrated stream to work with, which immediately helps the economics of it. And then once it is aggregated and it's there, it's generally, you know, it's generally sent to an animal feed solution or maybe a composting solution or whatever. So being able to convert that into anything higher value is, is just a win-win for, you know, various partners, the feedstock partner, the offtake partner, Blue Marble. So that's one of the beauties of using, you know, food, wa- you know, food waste or agricultural waste from that perspective is it's already aggregated and then we can just, it, it has that single point we can use to then convert into products for our partners. Now you've had a, a you've had a hit so far with your bacon dithiazine, which is a bacon flavor ingredient ingredient that you've developed. Uh, the flavor and aroma of bacon from I guess from raw materials uh, like we're discussing now. What has it yeah, traditionally which, been? What has it been made for? Aside from making it from well from the original from the pig, where do they get it if they're making it synthetically? 
Yeah, so generally if it's synthetically derived, it's made from uh, petroleum-derived com- compounds, right? So someone will get petroleum-derived starting materials, say, from a, a Chinese um, producer or a, potentially a U.S. vendor, and then they'll do a bunch of catalytic synthesis for it. What we do is we actually generate the raw materials and the synthesis components all from a fermentation process, and, and then we're able to build those molecules that we need from a non-GMO fermentation for our partner, which, which really leads, to, leads towards you know, that acceptance in the market for things that hit, hit consumer demand, right? There's a heavy demand for natural, non-GMO, all those variety of things. And we're able to hit a lot of those milestones on it and valorize the waste, which kind of makes it that kind of triple bottom line on, you know, developing products for our partners. Now, you went the, the non-GMO route. Uh, a lot of companies in the space actually use GMO, but you don't. Um, was that a decision propelled by the opportunities you saw in the non-GMO market or because you felt technologically you just didn't even really need that kind of uh, step? Yeah, it's a combination of two. Um, the, the, the path we choose in using polyculture in a mixed fermentation really is incredibly complicated to try to introduce genetically modified systems into that um, from a background. So from a technology perspective, it was about reducing complexity and reducing risk. And then, you know, in the flavor, fragrance, personal care, food ingredient space, you know, there's just this demand, you know, starting in Europe, but now kind of increasing in the U.S. for non-GMO solutions as well. So kind of we got in there for, you know, from a technical perspective, and then we've stuck with it just because that's where consumer demand and client demand is. Now, I'm not quite sure whether um, bacon dithiazine, bacon flavors made from petroleum, counts as vegan or not. I'm not quite sure about that. But uh, but certainly, you've gone the vegan route as well as the kosher route. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. What? Uh, how big is that market and is it growing? Yeah, you know, the, the, the demand for, for vegan is huge. People don't want to, you know, people don't want to harm animals. There's a lot more conscientious um, consumers out there that want to reduce their impact on, you know, they, the, even if they do eat animal products, they see, the, they see the environmental impact of, say, you know, raising pigs or, you know, raising cows or whatever from that. So there's a growing demand there. And then, you know, kosher really fits in well with uh, people's, you know, religious proclivities, pro, pro you know, as well as going into, you know, realms like halal and stuff like that as well. So, you know, so those things are important because there's, you know, ethnic groups, um, you know, around the world where if you're going to sell into certain markets, there's enough of the population there that you have to hit that target to make that market worthwhile. Europe being a great example, right, of, you know, kosher is pretty important for products going into Europe. We, we've seen the, the line between meats and plants are getting kind of fuzzy, and you're, you're blurring the line a little bit because you're making a flavoring that's, you know, that's become a big hit. As we, as you mentioned, in the especially in the vegan kosher markets, they really want those uh, those flavors, but can't get them from the traditional materials. But we're also getting seeing companies like Impossible Foods fermenting meats from bio-based raw materials, Moo-Free, uh, now called a perfect day, making a cow's milk from the same types of inputs. Modern Meadow is making uh, uh, real leather from real cow cells, but not raising a cow in the process. It's part of a. It looks like a technology wave. Do you do you see it that way, or is this just a uh, uh, just just happened to have these companies coming forward at this time, or is there is there a is there a reason for for all these companies to coming be coming forward just right now? Yeah, you know, I'm not a marketing guy, but from what I see from my perspective, there is a high demand for ethical products. And so I think, you know, animal free, you know, not, not from an animal, but there's a huge demand for that. And, and it appears to be a growing demand for those kind of ethical products from that aspect. So I don't think it's just a splash or whatever. I think it's, I, I think it's really a desire from the, the market and um, the purchasers and, you know, the consumer and, you know, the U.S. and Europe for those kind of products. 
Now, we've, we've, in our previous segment, we were talking about some of the challenges of Evolve and Cargill have focused on the sweeteners market with a stevia-based uh, uh, solution. It's a, it's a synthetic stevia made from uh, these raw materials, uh, made from plants, uh, not from petroleum. But um, they've had a few scale-up uh, challenges along the way just to get the, uh, the cost down. So um, how does that work for you? I mean, how do you work your way down so that you can not only provide something that performs really well, but also meets the cost targets of the companies that you're working with. It's really a philosophical approach for you know you know high use low margin products versus you know kind of limited volume but high margin products. You know what you what we, how we feel is you have to follow the, kind of the same opinion that you know Rockefeller did with Standard Oil, right? Is you have to start with a handful of things that are going to provide value to the entire system and then grow into the high volume things. One of the issues with the sweetener market and the price points with it, right, is you know even a high potency sweetener like a stevial glycoside or something like that. You know, there still need to be in high volume and they're used in high demand, so you need massive economies of scale to get started, versus a high-impact aroma chemical, say a sulfur-based aroma chemical. The usage levels are lower, so you can start building your pyramid of products off that because it has enough margin or enough room in it to really be able to get you to take that feedstock and grow into a market and then start effectively subsidizing the production and development downstream of the future products. And so just focusing on a single, a single goal, just making one product is kind of classical industrial thinking, but it's not how a lot of the successful companies did their work in the past. What kind of targets do you think that um, you, you might be interested? Where, where do you think the big targets are for your next wave uh, without, without giving away things you might be working on uh, today? Just, you know, in terms of sectors, what, what kind of uh, things should we be thinking about might be changing on our shelves, um, our shopping shelves uh, in the near future? You know, we're doing expansive work on expanding into, you know, the natural color markets, polymers, solvents, you know, anything with practical implication on replacing synthetic dyes and providing alternatives for, uh, alternatives for anything kind of in a crude oil home-based product. You know, think insulation, think cushioning, anything like that. We're, we're, we're really working into that space because that has those, you know, less valuable than flavors and fragrances or pharma components, but more valuable than the fuel components. So we're really starting to work our way down that value chain, right? So starting with the high impact that we can get into and then working and expanding into, you know, still high value chain materials, but, you know, much higher value than, say, a, a, a lubricant or a um, fuel component. Now, uh, we call you the Missoula Masters of Metamorphosis because you're, you're in that uh, corridor of a couple of companies that have chosen to locate in, uh, on the side of the Bitterroots there in Missoula, Montana. What attracted you uh, to stay clear away from places like uh, Silicon Valley, is it is it cost and is it easy to get people to, uh, uh, you know, uh, highly competent technical people to to move up to uh, uh, beautiful end of the world? You know, I think there's I think there's three major things that make this area really valuable for especially biomaterial development. One is we have multiple excellent schools in the region that provide a great pipeline of you know partners, students, you know experts. So you have University of Montana and uh, Montana State. You know, great you know pharma programs, great biology programs, great engineering programs. You know, the Thermal Biology Institute there working with Yellowstone, all of that right there. Um, you have a beautiful location that people don't want to leave, and then you. Do just have a quality of life that's different than elsewhere. You know, it's you don't have to hassle big city things, all those kind of things. So I think it lends people to be much more creative and much more focused because they're able to, you know, detox and de-stress and then reset and get back to work quickly. Tell us a little bit about 
what the what the production facility looks like um, from a technology point of view. You, you, we've talked a little bit about the inputs, and we talked a little bit about what you get out of it. So you start with a coffee ground, you end up with a bacon flavor. But what does it look like in the inside? What are you using to make that conversion? You know, it, it's really deceptively simple. A, a lot of it is a, simply um, a, a series of fermentation systems. So there's some biomass processing, grinding, whatever from that as, uh, aspect, maybe some upfront extraction if we're removing colors or other bioactives from a material. Um, and then it feeds into fermenters and the microbes do the heavy lifting and then there's downstream separation work. And, and that's typical of any other separation group, right? It might, you know, we're kind of limited with what we can do following some of the natural rules if you look at U.S. and EU natural. But, you know, it's primarily distal or liquid-liquid extraction systems. So it's kind of what you'd probably expect in any um, kind of biofuel or biomaterials environment that's using um, a fermentation backbone, right? Fermenters and then downstream cleanup equipment, generally distillation. So this is going to look more like a winemaking enterprise than perhaps a petroleum refinery in terms of uh, impact on the environment. Is that, would that be a fair way to look at it? Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it is, you know, the fact is that it's, you know, it's effectively passive activity occurring with fermenters, with distillation. It's, it's much more akin to looking like a distillery, um, you know, or, or like you said, a brewery than it is a traditional petrochemical refining system. Is uh, Missoula where you'll be uh, producing molecules at scale for your clients for some time to come, or would you ultimately um, work with them to establish production facilities closer to where their, um, their raw materials are? Yeah, our primary focus is that co-location. I know you've talked with Colby in the past about this. You know, our primary focus is that co-location with our partners to make sure that we're not transporting low-value biomass, um, excessive amounts of different uh, distance, uh, specifically to focus on those various scale-ups and expansion industries, right? So, you know, you can, you can do a lot when you're doing high-potency molecules and you can transport things a long way. But if you really want to move and make a huge impact on displacing petroleum out of supply chain, you have to be closer to the feedstock to make sure that you're... You know, you're using your energy and your shipping costs on, on higher value products than you are on shipping low value biomass around. And also, in, let's say in the, in the brewery segment, one of the things that um, I, we've seen brewers really struggle with to find uses other than directly to the landfill for their, uh, for their, uh, their residue grains. And so it's, it's landfill impact and, and environmental uh, sensibility that's driving some of this activity. Is that not the case? Not just the search for higher value. Oh, no, absolutely. You know, that, 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 that corporate stewardship or social responsibility, you know, and, and making sure that stuff doesn't just end up in a landfill but ends up kind of recycled and back in the supply chain is definitely a driving factor for many of our partners. And I think it's highly important for the brewery industry, especially giving, uh, given kind of changing regulatory environments and tariffs on DDGs and all that stuff that's occurring. It's re- it really works towards driving um, a desire to figure out how to valorize stuff at home. Now, there you are in Montana, this, in this election cycle, uh, a red state, and, uh, you know, there, but uh, how has been the uh, support statewide for, uh, for uh, helping companies like yours get into existence and to choose Montana as a place to do business? No, you know, the, the state has absolutely great support for us. The governor does a great job. Um, local... Um you know, local government does a great job for us, helping us. And then, you know, we have a great, um, you know, representation at the federal level with our congressmen and senators. So, you know, I, there's nothing I can complain about with, with how the state and, you know, our, our representatives help us here in Montana. Well, it's, uh, it's an amazing uh, story. Blue Marble Biomaterials uh, coming out of Missoula, Montana. And thank you, James, for joining us on TerraTech this morning. When we come back after this short break, industrial biotech expert Ron Cascone from Nexon will join us to talk about the world of bio-based materials and the potential for even more new products and new ingredients. Stay with us. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Terratech is brought to you by the Advanced Bioeconomy Leadership Conference, March 1st through 3rd in Washington, D.C. Technology Convergence, Energy Security, Advanced Manufacturing, and Clean Economy Jobs. The RFS, which is Renewable Fuel Standard, is an important tool in the mission to achieve energy independence for the United States. Energy independence is a requirement of America's to become great again. My theme is Make America Great Again. I will do all that is in my power as president to achieve that goal. combination of biology and uh, the technologies coming out of IT is really what's going to drive some amazing... Oil prices, yes. The story on everyone's talking about. But if the U.S. can prove that next-gen biofuels works and that you know, other technologies work like DME and, and really great kind of biogas vehicles, then they can export that. The thing that really is exciting is this convergence. To learn more, visit biofuelsdigest.com slash ABLC. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Terra Tech. To reach Jim Lane or his guest today, call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to jlane at biofuelsdigest.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to TerraTech. I'm your host, Jim Lane. In this this morning's program, we've been on a journey in search of the new flavors and fragrances. And joining us for this segment is Ron Cascone, the renowned industry consultant from Nexon, who's been a mainstay on stage at the Advanced Bioeconomy Leadership Conference and in our online webinar series like March Madness and Strategic Intent. Uh, good morning, Ron. Tell us a little bit about Nexent, what you do there. Oh, well, uh, we're a company that was originally uh, based in uh, chemicals and energy consulting. About uh, a decade ago, we jumped into this uh, biorenewable space, and I think we, uh, we've contributed a lot to, the, uh, to due diligence and to uh, advising companies in, in developing their technologies and their projects. In this area, well, we've heard about a growing market from uh, from James Stevens at Blue Marble Bio, and also uh, Scott Chaplin a little bit earlier talking about the broader uh, FNF market, uh, flavors and fragrances. Uh, from an industrial biotech uh, uh, point of view, how how big is this, and where's it going? Uh, let's get, let's get started there. Well, right now, it's uh, our numbers show it's about twenty five billion dollar market, flavors and fragrances. There were five or so top players, and some of them were named uh, in, in, uh, in the discussions. Uh, and, you know, besides being for the obvious markets like foods, candies, and beverages, household products, uh, cosmetics, and personal care, there are many, many other areas in which these uh, types of materials uh, are important. And, in fact, what's, what's ha- happening, as you mentioned it, in Art Mason and 
developed by, uh, by Amaris originally under uh, Gates Foundation sponsorship, is sort of a bleeding edge of, uh, of between flavors and fragrances and uh, health and medical in that uh, you have that particular material, but then there, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the wine component, uh, Resveratrol, uh, res ver- res, yeah, res uh, which is an important one. But there's another one, uh, Nutcatone, which was developed initially by uh, Alilix, uh, Callan Fritz's company that was sold to uh, Evolva. Uh, and that's a uh, citrus peel uh, material that's found in, in grapefruit peels, but now it's being synthesized uh, by fermentation. And it is being uh, looked at as a, a Zika uh, mosquito repellent and, and a Zika treatment. So uh, that's a pretty important market uh, and, and uh, you know, a world-important uh, market. But, yeah, so that, that's, where, uh, that's where I think the, uh, the industry is heading in, in, that, in that spillover between yeah. uh, uh, FNF and, and, and health. I love the smell of Newt Catone. It's um, it's the smell of my childhood. Nuka spruce is where it comes from. Yeah. It's in the in the yeah. Pacific Northwest, and it, you can't avoid it. You know the whole the whole uh, uh, the whole uh, kind of Pacific coast up there just just smells like a like a big Alilix factory. So uh, so it's uh, <laughs> real good to see that they're they're making progress with that. Flavors, fragrances. If it were you, and you were advising a company, which you do all the time. Where do you tell them to start? Is our fragrances better? And if 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 fra- if flavors are better, uh, what end of the market do you start with? The bigger markets like sweeteners, or do you go the route uh, that Blue Marble Biomaterials went? You know, focusing on those really small niche markets and uh, uh, players like uh, Anheuser Busch that are trying to get you get rid of some uh, uh, industrial residue. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's the way of the world. You start with the expensive stuff. And you move to the uh, uh, the cheaper stuff and the higher volume stuff. That's just you can't you can't afford if you're a new company to build a huge plant and go to scale right away. So just to put things in context, the prices of flavors and fragrances I think average around thirty dollars a kilo, uh, fifteen you know fifteen dollars a pound. Uh, but they can go up to two thousand dollars a kilo. That's an astronomical number in the chemical industry. As for something, let's say, like sandalwood uh, aroma. So, although the, the sweeteners and, and some of the flavorings are at high volume, they're, they're much less, uh, the prices are much lower. So, you want to start with a, uh, you know, a very expensive type of material. Now, there's a low uh, entry uh, barrier to any of these uh, of, the, of the fragrances, but maybe more so higher entry, uh, barriers for entry into the uh, into the sweetener markets or, or the flavor markets. So if you can make patchouli oil, sand, sandalwood, ambergris, you know, citrus or aromas, spice aromas, florals, and so on, uh, you are probably going to be more successful in getting and uh, bootstrapping yourself into a business. Now, in my old days working in the uh, in the fashion publishing sector with companies like uh, L magazine we uh, we used to have a lot of lot, uh, a lot of work done by by our our uh, partner companies advertisers would uh, have all kinds of ways they were trying to introduce uh, new fragrances into the market sometimes you open up the page and there's a you know kind of a scratch and sniff um, is the um, is the demand going to be there for and is it is it possible for these companies 
to really get that uh, natural made uh, message out there? Is that is that a real positive for them? Is it is a consumer pull that they're looking for, or are they just looking to uh, to do things in a sustainable way? Is it is it a, a corporate push or a consumer pull that's that's driving the the fragrance market? Good question, Jim. I don't think that the uh, the uh, fragrance market uh, is necessarily driven by uh, wanting uh, you know natural products, non-GMO, and so on. Uh, I think the food industry is is really driven by it, and food and beverages uh, on the other hand. So there is a dichotomy there, uh, and I think um, so. What I think the driver, the real driver, I think, you know, for things like patchouli oil and sandalwood and, and these other uh, aromas is the volatility of the, the natural sources. You know, if there's a bad weather in, in uh, Tasmania and there's less uh, lavender uh, being uh, harvested, uh, lavender flowers being harvested one year and the price goes up, the same is true of some of these other materials that, that bounce all over the place. Just to give you an example, again, we were talking about uh, these artemisinin, which was uh, a general, which was initially uh, uh, synthesized by fermentation by uh, amorous. That material has had a swing of sixfold in price over the last five or eight years or so. And so it's been a real problem for uh, their, their, their producing partner. Uh, to uh, produce that material and, and put it in the market um, against the uh, naturally extracted artemisinin. And the problem was originally posed that, gee, there's not enough of this stuff to treat all the malaria in the world, and we can make carloads of it. Yeah, but then the price goes down, and, and you can't make money on the, uh, on the fermentation route. So there, there is this issue, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a bit of an enigma, but... In general, I think if you can if you can synthesize these materials, and most of them are isoprenoids that we're talking about, uh, if you can synthesize those materials, and, and it's hard because uh, you know bugs don't want to make isoprenoids; they're they're off the metabolic main metabolic pathway, so it's, you don't get a high yield even from the fermentation process. But it's better than going out and picking leaves in the jungle and trying to extract the uh, material from that. So uh, yeah, that that that's that's a big issue in, in terms of uh, uh, getting into the business. Well, that that tends to push companies to do things like GMO, and and we've seen uh, technologies come along like CRISPR-Cas9 that uh, have made that easier. Yet companies like Blue Marble have gone the other route. What are the what are the decision points? What what um, uh, the, what what do, what kind of thinking do people uh, go through when they decide to go GMO or non-GMO? Well, I think we've said it. It depends on what the market uh, wants, and, and I don't think the market cares that much for fragrances. Uh, but you put on a label for food or beverage, non-GMO, and there's going to be a big segment of the population that will that will gravitate to that product. I think there's a real, uh, using two big words, that this dichotomy of GMO versus non-GMO uh, contains an enigma. Uh, in that uh, people want to be, you know, would rather do uh, biologically based and petroleum based, but sometimes you can't make the material economically uh, by natural uh, by naturally occurring uh, microbes, and you have to go to a GMO to to make it. But I'm wondering whether the CRISPR technology, which is not transgenic, 
it's gene editing within the microbe, the uh, the the, uh, the living entity itself, plant or or animal itself. Uh, CRISPR is uh, being used in medical areas. It's being used in in, in uh, synthetic and in, in, uh, industrial biotechnology, and it just means editing the genes that are native to that organism, and without introducing, let's say, a, a flounder gene into a tomato, which is you know Frankenfood being called. So the 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 enigma is that, for instance, PHA, which is uh, uh, which is probably the at this point the only bio, really biodegradable polymer. Organic farmers would rather use petroleum-based black plastic mulch than than using PHA black plastic mulch because the PHA is a GMO-made uh, material, and, and you can't make PHA economically without using GMO uh, microorganisms. So they would rather use petroleum-based plastic black plastic mulch, which is, of course, an excellent. Uh, way to go for uh, for organic farming uh, to use to use a plastic black plastic mulch. Uh, they'd rather use a petroleum based than the GMO based PHA. So that's kind of I think in my mind it's shooting yourself in the foot because actually the PHA has no transgenic it has no GMO material in it. It's the production process can be made so that there's no GMOs released. So it's I think a uh, it's a problem. It's, it's an enigma to be faced uh, all over the long run. So to sum up, performance is more of a factor um, of differentiation in the fragrance market, fair to say, versus flavors where things like sourcing and the type of technology used are going to be uh, more more factors in the consumer's mind and also the, uh, uh, the manufacturer's. Fair, is that a fair way to sum it up? Yes, and the CRISPR technology, the jury is still out on whether that will be seen as GMO or not. Now, we've seen a number of companies, Ron, we've seen uh, some companies use uh, materials, uh, fresh materials like corn sugars or uh, sugarcane sugars, so, you know, first-gen, you know, kind of available raw materials. Others are targeting residues. We saw Blue Marble uh, biomaterials using spent coffee grounds and using brewery waste uh, you know, clearly lower cost to use residues, and everyone would like that. What are the challenges there? Well, I think the challenges are, you know, and, and I don't know their technology, Blue Marvel's technology. Uh, I haven't taken any close look at it, but generally it's much easier to operate with a really clean sugar, uh, such as uh, sugar cane uh, sugar or, uh, or beet or, uh, or corn uh, glucose, than in a with a uh, say a cellulosic based sugar, and uh, some technologies don't don't operate well at all unless the sugar is very clean. Uh, it, it's kind of if you're making a food from sugar fermentation or food ingredient, I, I don't really see the problem. It's not food versus fuel or food versus chemicals. It's food versus another kind of food. So. Um, you know, I, th- I think that's that's a big consideration, um, and uh, um, you know, I think that that um, you know, we, you you of course face a much higher cost of materials with sugar, clean sugar, than you do with uh, cellulosic sugar. You might with cellulosic sugar in the future, or uh, with waste materials. But I think the processing cost 
my guess is the processing costs are, are pretty fierce when you're using a, uh, a material that really uh, has a very, very small concentration of what you're interested in in it, like, uh, you know, great pumice or a, or a coffee ground or, or some other uh, agricultural waste. Fifteen-second answer uh, to this question. Um, we've seen companies like Beauregard making vanilla flavoring using the residue lignin from uh, wood processing. Is that uh, is that a, a growth area, or is that just one company has a molecule and that's a great thing? I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's going to be uh, lignin. I think there's there's a lot of potential for lignin, and it's very very broad. I think uh, I think all the supply that's needed. Of vanilla, vanilla flavoring, vanilla from from wood is being supplied. I don't think there's a big uh, growth market there. I think that you know population growth is a big factor in in market growth in this area. It's directly related, and I think um, also for some of the fragrances, the, the world is getting hot, flat, and uh, crowded, and we're going to need more uh, underarm deodorant and and fragrances, and you know people are beginning. Coming we, to afford it better because there's a growing middle class around the world. So we've come to the end of uh, Ron. We've come to the end of our our show. Uh, we've been on the exploration of flavors and fragrances. Thanks to our guest Ron Cascone of Nexent. It's been a long time to Jesterati helping us to navigate this journey. That's all we have uh, time for this morning on TerraTech. We'll be back next Wednesday at nine Eastern for another dip into the changing world of products all around us. Until then, I'm Jim Lane, wishing you a great day in this new world of opportunity. Thank you for tuning in to TerraTech. Please join your host, Jim Lane, again next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And this week, take notice of the products in your life.